Hello and welcome to the Clockwork Game Design Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Bergun. Today I've got two really awesome guests on, um, two really great game designers, writers, podcasters, fellow podcasters, Jeff Engelstein and Isaac Shalev. And today I've got them on the show to uh, pitch their book, uh, which is coming out called Building Blocks of Tabletop Game Design, uh, which is really looking fantastic. It's really, it's this big, like epic book that's trying to, you know, sort of follow in the footsteps of I, what I think is a, a long-running project to sort of help give designers words for games, like you know, and terms, and 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 sort of a language for talking about games. This is something that I think every game designer is, is sort of forced to try to um, pursue. Anyway, uh, Jeff in particular, you know, he was extremely um, important and motivational to me uh, as a game design theorist. Um, I put him in the leagues with uh, people like Dan C. Uh, Anna Anthropy, Naomi Clark, and others who, um, Frank Lance and Eric Zimmerman, uh, who, by the way, is coming on next week. Um, uh, and anyway, his work for Game Tech, which was the segment on uh, the, uh, the not the Ludology podcast, that was his podcast, but on the um, Dice Tower podcast was really fantastic. He got the terms input. He gave me the terms input and output randomness. Apparently you learn a little secret about those terms uh, on this episode, so that's pretty exciting. But yes, and uh, Isaac Shalev is another game designer. He's got a game called Seikatsu. Um, he also is a co-host on On Board Games, another podcast I've listened to a bunch before uh, about board games. Um, and together they wrote this book. It's looking really awesome. Um, I will provide links in the show notes. Definitely check those out. Um, without further ado, I'm really excited to bring you this great uh, podcast. And thanks for listening. As always, you can support this show on patreon.com slash Keith Bergun. I give you Jeff Engelstein and Isaac Shalev. So, hey guys, how's it going? Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I've been a big fan, um, uh, particularly of the Ludology podcast for a really long time, but I've also listened to, um, Isaac, you uh, co-host on board games sometimes, is that right? Yep, just about every other show, something like that. That's great. So I've been looking at your book. Uh, you guys are putting out a new book. We're going to talk a lot about that this uh, episode. Uh, Building Blocks of Tabletop Tabletop Game Design, an Encyclopedia of Mechanisms. And it really does look really cool. Um, I said on Twitter recently that I can't remember the last time. I do remember the last time I was excited about a game design book, and it was 2014. It was uh, Anna Anthropy and uh, Naomi Clark's book on game design. Um, and uh, But it's, it's, it's not that often that I'm particularly interested in a in a new game design book um but this one really seems super cool um when is it when is it coming out uh well the ebook is out now actually and probably by the time this airs the uh, physical book the paperback will be out as well i think the pub date is july 12th july oh. 14th something like that so it should be out super soon that is awesome um okay so before we get into the book we're gonna like definitely get into the book the theory behind it the you know why you wrote it all that kind of stuff um but i'd like to just quickly give people a little bit of your guys backstories where you're coming from that kind of stuff so like let's go one at a time um you know isaac uh how did you get into game development um what brought you here to where you are you know what is your general day-to-day -day like these days 
Sure. So I got back into gaming uh, right around uh, 2007, something like that. Uh, I was uh, 30 years old and I needed to find a more respectable hobby. I needed a hobby that uh, I could uh, engage in even as I was starting a family. And um, I don't wait, 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 hold on. You had a less respectable hobby before? I got to hear about what this is. <laughs> no, you know, we said nothing was out of bounds, but I didn't realize we were going to my 20s because those are totally out of bounds. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I came back to games. I played games all my life. I grew up as an Orthodox Jew. And so uh, Saturdays were just all about gaming because we didn't you know, travel in a car or use electricity. So mm-hmm. board games were, were really foundational. Uh, but, uh, I didn't really think about designing until spending a couple of years back in modern gaming back in 2007. And, uh, I guess about, uh, five or six years later, I had started doing a little bit of design and I went to my very first convention, uh, which was Gen Con. I don't know how many people go to Gen Con as their first. Um, but, uh, it was also a very fortuitous Gen Con because it was the first Gen Con that had a designer publisher speed dating event. And that was a great opportunity for me to put this game that I had been working on, um, in front of publishers and just try and pitch it and sort of, I was doing design independently on my own. I wasn't play testing with other designers. I wasn't really big in the community or anything. I was a little bit on Twitter, but basically I was doing this on my own and I came out from my basement with this game and I actually got it signed, ultimately not published, but I did get it signed from that that pitch um, at Gen Con. And that really gave me the confidence and the signal that this is something I could do. So Picking up from there, I continued to design games. I eventually met uh, Matt Loomis, who became my longtime collaborator, and uh, published uh, a number of games. I had an independent Kickstarter called Chronosphere. I had a game with uh, AEG called Ravenous River. And probably the one I'm best known for with Matt is a game called Saikatsu, uh, which is actually coming out in a new edition in the end of August. Um, but uh, So yeah, so Matt and I have been working and churning out games and getting some of them published. Um, and I started writing about game design because that's just how I design. I need to write and sort of think through the process. So I started a blog over at kindfortress.com and ultimately hooked up with, with Jeff through local connections, a New Jersey convention that we both attended. And, um, you know, obviously I've been listening to Ludology and I'll, I'll let Jeff pick up that end of the story when he gives his background. But basically my, my day to day right now is I continue to work my day job. Uh, so I'm not a full-time game designer, uh, but I do the onboard games podcast. I write a blog at kindfortress.com. Uh, I design games my partner matt as well as um, other co-designers and um you know we've got uh games coming out you know in the pipeline stuff that's coming out this year stuff that's coming out next year so an active designer very active on twitter at kind fortress if you want to connect with me there and love talking about design nice so that's that's great those kinds of stories i think are actually really helpful especially when people are kind of coming up you know they're they're not sure like Everyone has their own weird path that they take to get into these kinds of things, but um, it's comforting sometimes, I think, for people to hear like, oh, people just have these weird, fluky things. And, you know, we talked last time, uh, I had Tim Fowers on, and we talked a lot about conventions, uh, you know, conferences and how important those can be. Um, so, yeah, that's really cool to hear that about Gen Con. I still yet to go, which I feel silly about, um, but uh, I, should, I should definitely go soon. Um, 
So yeah, Jeff, um, why don't you give us a similar spiel, your your rundown of your life so far? <laughs> life sure. Story. So, <laughs> well, I'm older than than you guys, so it's going to take a little bit longer, I guess. But I I go way back, you know, with gaming. Certainly grew up with it all, and you know, in the early uh, like mid '70s was when I first was kind of exposed to the larger world of games initially in the form of Avalon Hill games like Panzer Blitz and Diplomacy and stuff like that and started playing that in junior high school and that led to uh, right around the time when Dungeons and Dragons was first released and was first popularized so um, you know got into that with my friends uh, went to actually Origins 3 which was in 1979 in Chester Pennsylvania it was one of my first away from home experiences I was like 14 or 15 years old and for some reason my parents uh i convinced them to let me hop on a train and go down to pennsylvania and uh just hang out it was on a college campus that year and we stayed in the dorm rooms with my friends and there was no cell phones back then so we just like vanished for three days and went home nice. um and that just really you know opened my eyes to all the different types of games that, that there could be that was when cosmic encounter was just coming out and um junta was kind of first released right around then and um my love of games um continue playing all through college college i got much more into the war games um world in flames and squad leader and stuff like that uh and then um you know just when it just kind of gradually just morphed over time you know once i had got married and had a family we in, in the 90s we switched to the euro games and started playing those um and then um in the early 2000s when podcasts started um tom vassal started the dice tower and uh i i listened and i for business, I traveled to Korea occasionally, which is where he was. So we used to hook up and, and play games. And then he mentioned that he was looking for some additional segments and stuff. So I decided that, you know, hey, I maybe I have something to say about games and design. Um, oh, I forgot to mention, I did actually design some video games when I was in high school. Uh, I did some old Apple II computer games. Oh, nice. Uh, one of which you can still play through a browser emulator, Star Blaster, somewhere on the interwebs. Uh, and I, I always had kind of toyed with game design even while I was playing and uh, was really into math and science and stuff like that. So when Tom mentioned this, uh, that he was looking for someone, I came up with this idea called Game Tech, which was kind of linking games and using them as ways of explaining things both within and outside gaming. Yeah, you did a segment um, really on, the, on the Dice Tower um, podcast, was it? Yeah, yeah I still do. to that. Yeah. Oh, nice. yeah. It's been over ten years that I've done been doing that. So wow. yeah, I have like a five minute piece like every two weeks. Um, and when did you start the Ludology podcast? Stuff. Ludology started in 2011, so that kind of grew out of my uh, starting to chafe a little bit at the five minute constraint on the Dice Tower, and I wanted to do right. some longer form discussion. And at that point, I had actually designed and released some board games. Um, so the first one being the Ares Project, which was an attempt to take Star uh, Starcraft and turn it into a board game. Uh, and from there, just kind of kept designing. I've I've got probably about ten games published now. Um, latest ones are um, a trade on the Tigris from uh, Tasty Minstrel and the Expanse from WizKids, um, based on the TV series. One coming Very out cool. later this year from GMT called Versailles, nineteen nineteen, about the uh, the negotiation of the treaty at the end of World War One, which everyone is clamoring for that <laughs> that to be simulated. Uh, <laughs> Well, I think it's too bad that you you didn't nail the 2019 100th anniversary of Versailles because there it are will parades, be there are fireworks. Yes, I know. Well, it should be out this year, so uh, hopefully we'll still squeak in under the uh, the big 100th anniversary of the armistice or the signing or whatever. But we'll see. 
Um, but you know, that's led just to a lot of opportunities for me, which has been really gratifying. And one of them was, um, I, I, uh, teach game design, uh, board game design at, uh, NYU game center, um, which is where Keith, I guess you and I first met face to face at one of their practice conferences. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that, and, and out of GDC, um, and giving presentations out there, uh, and, um, that was kind of the genesis of the book, uh, was, um, that uh, after uh, a GDC uh, game developer conference uh, presentation, I was approached by um, the video game series editor at CRC Press, who does you know, like designing video games with Unity and using C Sharp to do this and how to do animations and all those types of books. Yeah, they're um, my, they're my publisher they really... as well for both of my books. So you know them well. Yep. And they were really looking to get into tabletop uh, design. They felt that was the next kind of area that they wanted to expand into. There's a, a lot of competition, I guess, for video game books. And um, so I, you know, kind of went off and and uh, and thought about what would work uh, in a book format. And um, it, just a couple of things just kind of converged. Uh, one was, um, you know, in teaching my class, one of the hurdles I've always run into is that... Um, even even students that play a fair number of your games, you know, haven't played nearly as many as I have or, or own as many as I own, much to my wife's chagrin. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so they would come to me with questions like, how, how do I do this or how to do that? And they were you know, reinventing the wheel over and over again in terms of these mechanisms. You know, how can mm-hmm. I have an auction? What happens if there's a tie? You know, how can I structure my turn? And, um, and then uh, we had Isaac on Ludology, and uh, we were talking about patterns uh, similar to, um, you know, object-oriented uh, patterns on that, that famous book and, um, and, and how that could kind of be applied to game design. And this is, things kind of came together. I was like, you know, dictionary of mechanisms or an encyclopedia of of the mechanics that build up a game that could be a really useful resource for um you know both beginning and experienced designers and isaac because of his bent in that direction already and and the writing that he had done i thought would be an ideal partner to help put that together so that, that was kind of the way the book got started Nice. Yeah. So I, um, I've only read a little part of the book, uh, so far, but like from just looking through it, looking through at the table of contents, even I, I can tell that this is like a extremely substantial and, um, I'm just very excited about this book. I, I wanted to read a tiny little piece of, uh, uh, Eric Zimmerman, what he said, who's coming on next week on the show, uh, who, uh, what he said about the book. He said, that's why building blocks of table tabletop game design is so significant. The incredibly detailed pages that follow pages that crack open the inner components of tabletop games constitute a kind of rosetta stone for game grammar um and so like this idea of this is something that's been around in the games academia world for a very long time uh you know greg kostikian wrote the uh, i have no words and i must design um that that book that i mentioned before naomi clark and anna anthropy is a game design vocabulary this idea that we don't have good words for things and that we don't have this is also something i've struggled with my own my own work i've i've strived to contribute something to um that's been like a major problem in the world of game design game design academia and uh and so i uh, my guess is uh and tell me if this is right but that you're you're trying to like make a really comprehensive version of this and specific to tabletop. Is that right? I think that that's part of it. Um, yeah, part of it was just to try to be definitional. And, you know, we even have in our section about turn structure, uh, we have a whole 
starting section about this is a the definition of a round versus a turn versus a step and just to try to unify that you know there's been so many so so many games are all over the place with that and it just makes it a lot harder on players um mm -hmm. you know the 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 original sin of of board games is the rules and the fact that you have to go through that so anything that you can do to kind of smooth that path and make it make the terminology common will help and you know Isaac and I had a lot of debates over what to call some of the uh, some of the terms and we tried to both make it descriptive and compact because uh, yeah I mean our our hope um, and you know uh, you know sound you know pompous or anything like that but our, our hope is certainly that this will you know be a standard reference book that people go back to and and will will help to uh, create some of that you know common vocabulary that will help game designers like if you the, the turn uh turn first player marker advances one player clockwise each each round that that's a progressive turn structure mm -hmm. or if one person does something and chooses to do something and the other players can do the same action if they want to that's called follow and things like that that we hope will will really uh uh catch on yeah i i think i always sort of detected that there was this sort of prescriptivism vibe that you've always had in, in your stuff and you don't come at it from like a very um you know uh, like the way that you that you um lay out your uh, thoughts on these matters it never i don't think it really causes much controversy uh, as far as i know i mean please feel free to correct me on that but um it, it seems like you have a very like down-to-earth way of sort of providing these prescriptive uh theoretical lenses for looking at some of these problems and i remember you know some of your game tech things and uh were were definitely inspirational to me now do you are i have to ask you because I, I forget if i've asked you this already in the past but did you invent the terms input randomness and output randomness or no um we got them from a listener and we have tried to go back and try to dig out the email or somebody mentioned something and, and maybe uh, they didn't mention it explicitly like that but it certainly was an email from a listener that sort of inspired us to use it on the show ah okay interesting yeah that was one of those ones that like i really latched on to and i i've built all my own stuff out of that and i really use those terms a lot i know there's fights about whether I, there was recently a twitter battle about whether that's the right uh term yes, the best yes. term for that <laughs> yeah that, that one's <laughs> i recently met the guy who did that and he he, he apologized he was like oh i'm sorry <laughs> isaac that was your fault what, what how did that well, happen so I, I don't recall. Uh, oh, so it was Peter Peter C. Hayward, who is a game designer and a publisher at Jellybean Games, um, made the point that he doesn't like the terms because he can never keep straight which one is which. And he finds that when listening to other folks talking about it, sometimes they can't keep them straight. I think there was a, another game design podcast, I don't remember which one, where the, the two folks talking uh both of them misused the terms and swapped them around the entire show. And when I was actually on uh, Ludology, Jeff, I don't know if you remember, I mixed them up as well. So um, well. I, having, having sort of made that mistake myself, I kind of jumped in with Peter and said, you know, I agree with you. I think um, if we were taking uh, suggestions, I would go with uh, pre-decision randomness and post-decision randomness, because I think that that really helps focus um, where you know where it is it's hard to make a mistake as to what it is because it's always relative to the decision you're about to make um or the decision you've just made so i, I like those terms the the main negative of pre versus post decision randomness is that they have the same abbreviation 
They don't they don't roll off the tongue. Right. Yeah. Well, well, we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll let history judge where that ends up. But I will tell you, Keith, I don't know if I, you know this story, but last year I actually walked into um, uh, Frank Lance's office. At mm-hmm. uh, he's he's the head of the NYU Game Center. Mm-hmm. He's got this giant whiteboard with all these things, and he was telling me about how he has these seminars and stuff. And I saw you know written in one section, it said input randomness, output randomness with a giant box under it, and underneath it said Keith Bergen. Huh. And I said, <laughs> and I said, Frank, I said, that's, that's not, I said, Keith got that from me. You can't, you can't just give, put Keith up there like that. And so I forced him to erase your name and put me. Yeah, no, I, I try to credit you with it every time I bring it up. Honestly, I, I, anytime anyone asks like, where did, where did that come from? I always credit you. Um, but I, well, but you know, Google what, foo is strong. That's, I, that's what I was going to say is yeah. When you Google a lot of my stuff, cause I write about yeah. it all the time. I never shut up no, about it. That's, that's um, fine. And the other thing that was interesting about the input and output randomness thing was, I don't know if you guys picked up on this, but the League of Legends lead designer put out a video. This is about two years ago now. I don't know if you guys like follow League of Legends at all, but they actually added these dragons to the game that, um, yeah, yeah. you know what I'm talking about? The four colors of dragon, the four types of dragon. And they, they actually have a symbol that appears on the dragon pit to show you which dragon is coming next. And the, mm. the, the designer, uh, Greg Street, who has also been on this podcast, uh, he uh, actually, in the video, he referred to it as input randomness. And he explained in this designer notes video to like, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of people like, so this is input randomness and this is output randomness uh, in the video. Yes, and Yeah. And I asked them. My kids are huge League of Legends players. So I have to track that video down and show it to them just so I can uh, lord, it, lord my superiority over them. <laughs> yeah. Because exactly. I, no, I get zero respect for my kids. So this may be. This may be my ticket in. There you go. So Jeff, Jeff, you're not going to beat him at league, so you may as well take I'm definitely it. not going to beat him at league, that's for sure. Uh, that's good. So, yeah, um, that's the kind of stuff I, I, I really i am super excited about. I mean, there's so much. Um, do you guys do a lot of, like, um, cataloging in this book of existing games, or do you just use games, at, specific games, to illustrate certain things? Or how, how did you address that like is this at all a historical kind of um archival work or is it entirely theory and entirely sort of constructive stuff probably the sections that i wrote had a little bit more look back and a little bit more history uh i think that jeff kind of attacked it more in a, a sort of constructivist way um but the goal is not for it to be an archival book um, the goal really was to try and capture as many mechanisms as we could and categorize them and provide definitions, give practitioners advice for when to use certain kinds of mechanisms, like what type of experience will this give rise to or what kinds of games does this fit well into, uh, even sometimes to the level of thinking about components that are needed to support a particular kind of mechanism. Um, and so that's really more the focus. And we illustrated with games and also referenced beyond games that we use. For example, at the end of every chapter uh, or every subchapter, every mechanism, there's a list of games that you can reference to learn more about the mechanism or see it in action. Gotcha. Um, but there are certainly sorry. some a lot of cases where we say, like, this was the first time that this mechanism was used and stuff like that. But a lot of this stuff goes back you know, to older that we wanted to make sure that we gave where possible that we had example games that people could actually get their hands on. Just, right, you know, right. you're not just these obscure things um, that that originated it. Yeah, well, and I think I, I think on. that Jeff and I are lucky in that we're we both uh, came into certainly modern Euro gaming, let's say, um, at 
at the, at the time that it was born. So both of us played things like Settlers of Catan and Magic the Gathering the year that they were published, right? We both had that opportunity to see this from the beginning. So I think it's um, easier for us to tell some of that story. So, you know, I can walk you through a history of worker placement, uh, talking about Kalis, but also talking about, you know, Boss and also talking about, um, you know, say, uh, uh, Keyflower and things like that. Um, and that's just part of how we grew in gaming. Um, so I think it was it would have been hard to take that away, and I hope the book is a little richer for it, but it helps us show how the mechanisms have become more developed, in some cases more complex, in some cases more streamlined. Um, and, and so it was useful to talk about them a little bit historically, even though we weren't trying to write a history. Right. Interesting. Um, I wonder if, uh, so this is a, this is definitely like a table talk top book clear through and through, but a lot of what I find is that, you know, there's, there tends to be more and more every year, kind of a little bit more bleed through between the two worlds of tabletop and, and video games. And, um, do you think like, was there, is there any points in the book where you talk about sort of video games or video game design tropes, or was there any kind of like bleed through there? Or do you find that this would be useful as well to video game designers as as well as uh, tabletop designers or what's your opinion on the sort of like split between um you know when when would you want to write a book about tabletop design specifically versus video game design obviously there are a lot of design different design tropes and all that sort of thing but we do reference a couple of video games in there uh, i know for sure that we talk about some of the mechanics in hearthstone and and the way that those work although that's you know i mean i think we we st stuck mainly with video games that were more um uh, you know, a uh, tabletop feeling, mm -hmm. you know, like Hearthstone as, as a card game and things like that. Sure. Um, I do know that, you know, a number of video game designers that I know have already, you know, looked at the book and, and are very excited about it because there's, you know, there's, there's certain core ideas in there about, um, uh, you know, across all games in terms of, you know, how actions happen and how things resolve and, 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 and things like that, that are, you know, at the heart of any type of a game experience of an action response loop. And, um, you know, there were even a lot of video game designers sometimes will tap into, as you said, the, the tabletop world to try to, you know, get new ideas and fresh ideas and different ways of approaching things. And so, um, you know, I think a lot of the the, the more obscure mechanisms um, that that we have or, or, you know, some of the ones that we express in a slightly different way could jog different ideas or different directions, even in, in a video game context. And certainly there's plenty of video games that are kind of turn-based and, you know, have you thinking about stuff if you're doing like a, a Civ building game or, you know, any kind of a turn-based game or JRPG and stuff like that. There's a lot of those, you know, kind of turn aspects that you have to deal with, you know, deal with resource. How do you deal with resources? How do you deal with economies? Um, how do you deal with hidden information and things like that? And, and we cover a lot of those. So it was really interesting hearing you talk about, you know, these early days of gaming and how uh, like both of you were kind of in on the ground floor with this, particularly Euro games, you know, or designer video or designer board games, as they're sometimes called. Like uh, I I'm very jealous of that because I spent, you know, I started playing games in the early 80s, but I or mid 80s, I suppose. Um, but I really only played video games until sometime in the, I want to say like late 2000s is when I first started. I discovered, uh, the, you know, these designer board games and I was like, oh my God, like for a game designer, it just seems like there's, um, 
you know, there's just so much more like actual mechanical systemic innovation and so much more of a focus on like rule sets and building better rule sets and, uh, you know, experimenting with different kinds of play. Uh, whereas like in video games, uh, you know, there was there was less of that, I guess. Uh, and so, you know, I, I'm I. I I, I always point people whenever I if I have an opportunity to teach game design or, um, you know, even for video game designers, I'm always talking about like the, the number one thing you can do to just like sort of expand your horizons and like, you know, jog your imagination is to play a bunch of like these designer board games. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, that's why that's one of the reasons that this book is so appealing to me. And most of the students I have in my class ultimately want to be video game designers, right? I mean, I'm teaching them board game design, but they want to be video game designers. But it's not, you know, they're not there just because it's like this hipster bespoke sort of thing. But it really, it, 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 video games let you, that you can't get away with in a board game. You know, a board game, you're, you're, it's right there in your face, right? You have to present the entire package to the players. You can't just, you know, wave magic wands behind the scenes that the players don't know about to give them experiences, right? You've got to be much more direct and, and, and at the same time, you've got to create mechanisms that are very clear and understandable. And, um, you know, a lot of times, although it's a heck of a lot better with, with the tools available now with video games, you spend so much time focusing on the, the programming of it, right? And if you want to make a, a change, you know, it's so much easier to make a change in a board game um, uh, as opposed to a video game. So, you know, if you can adopt those things and and test it out as as a board game and and learn kind of that, get that core concept going, then the, the other stuff you can do with a video game, making it easy to learn, making the computer deal with a lot of the behind the scenes stuff, making it graphically gorgeous and the sound and, and all of the other atmospheric stuff kind of layers on top of that core experience but you know if you can work with a board game and get to that initial good core um you can you can do it a lot faster and you can um get there more directly so you know that's i, I think that as you say there's a lot for um uh, video game designers so for board games and, and vice versa i think board game designers also would be doing themselves a disservice if they did not play um you know whether it's AAA or, or indie games you know uh, video games are out there have some tremendously inventive ideas that can inform board games as well mm. yeah um yeah so i'm super excited about this um do you guys have anything else you want to talk about about the book because i have a few other questions i want to ask you in a more general sense but before we move on i uh, just want to give you an opportunity if there was anything else you wanted to mention about this book um and <laughs> yeah yeah, just, just a couple of things. I mean, first, you know, we knew when we sat down to work on this that we were not going to, this is not intended to be like the OED of mechanism books, right? This, we, we, we did not make any pretense that we have everything covered in this book. Mm -hmm. uh, we tried to hit the highlights, you know, we combined some stuff and, you know, had some variations and different things, but, you know, there's, there, there's, it's not, you know, so I, I guess I'm preempting people coming in and complaining that, hey, this mechanism isn't in there sure. uh, because we know, we know, we know there was a large list. We had a, you know, sort of a page limit on what we could do and, and just time. And it's just anyway, there's new mechanisms being invented all the time. Sure. Um, and also, you know, but at the same time, we um, 
the mechanisms that we did include, we um, are, are put them presented, which Isaac kind of alluded to in a very, very structured way. So it's not like there's one paragraph, uh, one chapter, I mean, where we just have like 150 pages and we just babble on about turn order, right? It's mm -hmm. There's two to two to four pages typically on each mechanism. And there, it's similar to like an API document was the way I described it the other day. Uh, for those of you that program and, you know, look up commands and things like that. So there's, there's the, the name of it, as we said, there's a, a diagram, um, which which we could certainly talk about the way that we did the diagrams to illustrate the way the mechanism works. A description, a textual description of it, and then we have the um, the discussion of the pros and cons, as I was talking about, and that's where some of the history may come in and how it's it's changed in variations and different ways to use it. And then we give the sample games uh, with the, the years and the designers as a way of kind of documenting. Again, not exhaustively every mechanisms, which are some of the ones that we feel are exemplars for particular reasons. Yeah, nice. Uh, I'm, 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 I couldn't be more pumped. Isaac, is there any more, anything else you want to add about the, uh, about the book? Yeah, I would want to shout out Daniel Salas, uh, who did the diagrams because, uh, you know, he did a phenomenal job and limited with, uh, you know, working only in grayscale. He just was able to illustrate some, you know, the, something like 200 mechanisms that, uh, that we did. Now, Daniel's a great designer in his own right and, and works in, um, graphics and illustration for board games as well as, uh, design. And I think that he brought all those, all those skills together. He's got a great, uh, blog post up, uh, up over at his Patreon, um, where he talks about the challenges of creating, uh, these diagrams. And so if you want a little bit of an insight into, what they are and what that work looks like uh, it's another great thing to read along with um the the free samples that are available from amazon or from google uh to help you decide if you'd like to if you'd like to buy the book um so i do recommend that you check out daniel Salas's patreon and check out uh, the article he's got posted there nice yeah that's great um i'll try to add that to the show notes um also, uh, yeah, so I have a few other general questions uh, for you guys um, as, you know, board game experts. Um, one of which is um, you mentioned, uh, I think, uh, Jeff, or I think both you mentioned uh, relationships with uh, publishers, board game publishers. And I recently um, had Tim Fowers on the show, and he's a big Kickstarter guy. Um, and so I, I'm just trying to, I'm sort of farming people for opinions on, you know, what is your opinion on publishing a game through a public publisher, you know, in terms of like, uh, actually, you know, making money that way versus doing things like a Kickstarter route. Do you, either of you guys have strong opinions on, on this matter? Have you, have you had good, bad experiences in either, uh, arena? Um, Yeah. Oh, I have only gone through publishers. I have not self-published or used Kickstarter for any of my games. Okay. Um, I did use Kickstarter for the Game Tech book, but that was a different situation. But, um, you know, I think that the it depends on what you're trying to accomplish and, and where you where your interests are and where your skills are and what you're, you know, where you want to put your efforts. I mean, the reality is, is that it's very difficult to you know, make a real living just doing board game designs as and selling them through publishers the way I do. And I think the way Isaac does for the most part as well. Um, you know, the, for the most part, for most standard like big box types games as a designer, you're going to make in round numbers, a dollar a game. Mm -hmm. Print runs for, um, you know, hobby games are 3000 copies or so may sell 20,000 copies. You know, obviously there's, you know, your Gloomhavens and Ticket to Rides and Carcassones and stuff like that. But 
you know, you're not going to necessarily get that ticket punched, right? So you sure. got to figure that you're going to make three to five thousand dollars off of your game design. Mm-hmm. So you know, if you want to make a reasonable salary year after year after year, it's um, you know, you got to kind of have a lot of games out there or or get lucky with some perennials. Uh, if you're self publishing, you can make a lot more per copy, but um, you know, you're going to have to do a lot more work for that. You're going to have to really run a company and do the sales and the marketing and the fulfillment and coordinate all the artwork and all that other stuff. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to build on what Jeff's saying because it really does depend on what you want out of it and what you need from it. Um, because if what you need from it is the expression of your artistic vision with the level of control that um, allows you to make the big choices, then you're going to want to self-publish and you're going to want to go to Kickstarter and you w- will possibly take your lumps, right? Because Kickstarter is more and more difficult to enter into. You know, I funded a Kickstarter in um, 2014, I think it was. Yeah. Um, And I funded it off of maybe $300 worth of graphics that I paid somebody to just make some banners and, you know, just a couple of of little things. Uh, My Kickstarter video, I took myself with no special lighting and no special equipment. And I raised, I don't know, $11,000, something like that. Not a big raise, a tiny little card game. Um, But it was um, totally something that you cannot do today at that level. Where Mm. your ante for getting into Kickstarter today is probably mm, $1,500, something like that. Mm -hmm. And so... If you need that control and you have a vision and you want to be in charge of it, that's the road to take. Um, for me personally, I've seen it all the different Launched my own Kickstarter. I have been published in traditional publishing where the publisher did not go to Kickstarter. And I've been published through a publisher who went to Kickstarter and then uh, you know funded the game that way. And... Um, Certainly when a publisher is involved, there's a lot of great things that happen. There's a lot of great things that happen in terms of work that you don't have to do, uh, art direction, um, marketing, operations, logistics, shipping, printing, all that stuff that you don't have to do. It doesn't always get done the way you might want it to. Uh, Publishers typically have more than one project going, so you may not get as much uh, attention as you want. And uh, you're going to have to get along with a a team of people who are bringing something to life. On the other hand, being on Kickstarter has a certain, um, not just a cachet, but an opportunity to interact with your fans more directly. And that Kickstarter journey, that 21 or 30 day journey of funding is its own kind of magic. And I really do, um, I recommend the experience. Because part of why I do game design is for these incredible experiences, for going to conventions and meeting people I've looked up to, for um, seeing your game come out and then watching new people learn it right in front of you. I mean, there's a lot of great things that that I enjoy out of game design that Kickstarter is part of that. It's a special experience to have. So if you have the privilege to make this a side thing and you've got you know your, your main hustle and that's how you make your you can do this on the side. There's a lot of benefits that flow from having a publisher with you and being able to enjoy some of the experience, whether Kickstarter or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so you know, I know that that's not true for everyone. And I think also for a lot of people, the notion of going full-time is really, really scary. I think that 
most of the folks I know who are full-time either had some big hit early, right? So that, that's now their evergreen, or they take a lot of work on commission and do a lot of development work. So instead of taking royalties, they're getting money up front for their work. Right. And basically, if a game doesn't get printed a second or third time, the developer or the commission designer out earns the royalty based designer. It's only when a game goes into a second or third print run or gets published in other languages that the commission based designer starts to earn more. So that's a way of lowering your ceiling, but also lowering your risks and creating a more consistent income. So if you want to do this full time, definitely look into those opportunities to do development, to do commission work, uh, to do consulting and so forth, where there's dollars coming in up front. That's great. Yeah, thank you. That's really, really useful um, insight. Um, I Yeah, I, I do kind of get the sense that like, if you're going the self-publishing route, it's kind of like, this is going to be your whole life. You know, it's like what you're doing all the time. That's certainly what I've heard from uh, various uh, people who do try to self-publish is that it's just it's just uh, all the time whereas um perhaps if somebody wants to do it in more of a time uh part-time capacity with uh that it might be easier and more practical to work with a publisher sometimes is that kind of a reasonable encapsulation of one aspect of it yeah i think so i mean i run a, a small consulting company and it is less work to run that company than it is to run a publishing company uh, I don't know, Jeff, you're, 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 you've got a manufacturing house, I don't know if you feel the same way, but um, being a, a small publisher is an enormous, enormous, enormous amount of work. And what's, I think, most challenging about it um, is that usually you are every one of your partner's least important client, right? Because you're just not big enough to be anyone's number one priority. Right, and that's that's a tough way to live uh, as a, as a company. You know, I'm I'm in my professional life, I'm a consultant that um, my clients they, they want my time. They can't wait to hear from me. They're excited for when we're going to start our project because I'm going to help them solve a problem they've got. Um, you know, my publisher friends they're constantly chasing the distributor and they're constantly chasing the factory because you know they're just they're not big enough to be important to those people's bottom line ultimately. Mm. yeah that's a good point um how do it's you... a scary time to be a designer and a publisher both right now i mean it's a great time to be a player and <laughs> and you know an aficionado of games but you know there's four thousand new games per year coming out board games right so it's just hard to poke your head above water and get noticed and it used to be that you'd get those second and third print runs um but now you know a game is out you know it's like movies right that's two mm. months they're out of the theaters and it's kind of the same thing with games now so it's it's challenging. Well, so yeah, that's Steve, Steve Bonacore recently said, and I think this is a great rule of thumb for folks to know. He basically said, if a game doesn't sell out in its first year, you don't reprint it. And the print runs, I know, Jeff, you mentioned 3,000. You know, some of the larger publishers or even the medium-sized ones publishing games from um, somewhat more known designers are now pushing that number up to 5,000 or even sometimes 10,000. I know that 10,000 was the opening print run for Wingspan, for example. And if you don't sell that in a year, you're done. It's a tough, it's a tough spot. 
Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to ask you guys also about uh, the ways. So in in I'm like in indie game world, and you know one of the things that's happened in the last like ten years. Some people use the expression uh, the indie game apocalypse for the way in which um, it has become so easy to make and publish games, uh, partly through Steam and other platforms, also things like Unity. Um, I I think that Kickstarter has um and the and the board game world has something a little bit similar going on and. And I wonder if um, if if you guys have what what do you guys feel like the state of board games is right now? Do do you think the quality has gone up or down in the last five years, ten years? Uh, do you, obviously the quantity is up, um, and that's that's a great thing I think. Um, but for players, uh, maybe not necessarily for for uh, designers, but for players, I am curious like as to whether you think. Um, Kickstarter and other changes in the industry have increased like innovation or have they, um, you know, sometimes I see Kickstarted board games and I feel like the main thing in a Kickstarter is uh, your components and your quality of your components, not necessarily the quality of your game. I have played a few Kickstarter games where um, I felt like the quality of the game in terms of the rule set was like actually rather low and um it was really about these interesting cool components and fun little things great artwork and things like that and so i don't know um do, do you have any similar experiences like that or opinions on on the how kickstarter has changed the landscape keith how long do you have <laughs> we know that we're on the air conditioning countdown clock so that's true that's true i'm about to explode into a ball of flame in like 10 minutes so <laughs> well, well let me let me jump in real quick and I'll, I'll try and leave some of this apple uh to bite for jeff but um so i think that we were very very lucky in the 90s to have an incredible set of designers making games and when people ask me why do i think games have become more popular in pop culture and so on and what sort of fueled this rise my answer is we got really lucky that both printing and all this sort of other logistical stuff became easier but that ultimately a bunch of genius designers made incredible games and you're talking about you know whether it's sid saxon or canizia or the you know the bruno's bruno cathal and bruno Fiduti and um, you know wolfgang kramer and, and 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 kramer and you know all these guys they're just phenomenal designers and the games that we remember from back then, from the late 90s and early 2000s, we remember the most exceptional ones. But there were a lot of terrible ones. And even the good ones often had difficult rules and difficult rule books and not great graphic design and poor illustration and all the rest of that. So I think we've got sort of a, a, a rosy glow around our history so that when we look at games today and we compare and we say, oh, well, you know, nice bits but the rules were terrible and there was some broken things about the design it's true but I, I think that the average quality is substantially higher there's a lot more games so your chances of running into something that you're dissatisfied with are also relatively high right because there's a bunch of stuff that's okay it's not great um and at the top i think we've blown the roof off i mean i really think that uh the number of exceptional games that come out every year uh is is just astonishing to the point where you know if somebody said to me you can play everything from 2016 forward or everything from 2015 back which do you choose um i, I take the three years 2016 2017 2018 it, 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 there's that much good stuff it'll keep me busy the rest of my life hmm. Well, I, I don't know if I would, I think I might want to 
keep some of the games before that. But uh, <laughs> but in general, I do agree with Isaac. I mean, I think to that choose both. <laughs> I I do agree that in general, I would say that that on average, the quality of a game that's put out today is better than a than a game that was put out ten years ago or twenty years ago. Um, so yeah, I, I think in general, the state of the art has advanced. You know, it's you know building on the Knizia and Moon and those and and those folks. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I think that this is a, a great time and, and we've got great games. Um, well, you know, it's hard to do con- contrafactuals, but I wonder, like, if Ticket to Ride was just released today, um, you know, I think that it was uh, a its popularity and, you know, the fact that it sold, you know, millions and millions of copies is, is uh, to a big part just because there weren't as many great games then. I mean, back. You know, I don't. You said Keith that you were in the, the later in two thousands when you first started getting into it. When I first started buying Euro games, like in the late nineties, you could literally own every single game that was brought into this country from Germany. Right. Now it's just, and and so it was much more of a a, a common basis for the the the, the aficionados that were kind of you know picking up these games and, and doing with that. And so you know, it was it was a very different environment than it is now. Um, but I think in on average, I would say for sure the quality level is better now than it's ever been. That's great. I think we get more experiments too, right? I think that because gaming has advanced and because three thousand or four thousand games come out a year, there's actually a lot more room for experimental games, even if they don't succeed. I mean, I think about uh, some of the ones that I've played recently that I really, really appreciate the effort, even if they don't quite get there. I mean, things like uh, Mountains of Madness, which combines sort of a Cthulhu game with a party game about going crazy. Um, and, you know, you just wouldn't have had that uh, in, in a previous era. Or um, Nyctophobia, a game that you play blindfolded, and it's about being a victim of a horror movie. Uh, so, you know, those are cool, weird, interesting experiments, and they're not all going to work, but there's room for them. And those experiments ultimately lead to somebody landing that, right? Somebody taking those ideas and developing them further and, and using some craft to turn them into something truly revolutionary. So that's my hopefulness. Even when I encounter a game that's not great, uh, I'm glad to see how many people are now able to participate. I think from that, um, that number and from that diversity, we're going to see better and better things. Well, that's great. I, and that also leads me into my next question, which is I want to get a few game recommendations uh, from you guys, particularly new games. I I, I got I had this really intense phase about, uh, I don't know, eight, eight, eight to ten years or so where I was just incredibly super into designer Euro games, board games. And then sometimes it gets hard to like get a social group together. That's like, that's one of the biggest problems that I have with, um, with board games is just this, you know, being able to like, uh, physically get people together to play. Um, I tend to like, I tend to play a lot of games like, uh, you know, against bots on, on like the apps, uh, like mobile versions of stuff. I'm super into those, but anyway, that aside, um, do you guys have any, for the last few years, what I was, trying to get at was uh from the last few years i've kind of like been a little bit more checked out on the board game world so catch me up what are give me like two or three games each of you that you would super recommend people check out um and maybe a sentence or two about why uh so isaac why don't we start with you sure uh at the top of my list for sure is terraforming mars Mm -hmm. uh this uh, is probably a game that your listeners have least heard of because 
been immensely popular in the couple of years since it's come out, and it's generated a, a bunch of expansions as well. Uh, Terraforming Mars is this rare game that is both a Euro engine building type of game that feels uh, complex and feels like there's a lot of interesting and deep choices, but has a really, really simple structure that makes it very easy to teach. And that structure is every card represents a project that's going to have some impact on the planet Mars. And basically, there's a cost in dollars to play it. If you pay the cost, you play the card and you do what it says on it. That's it. That's all you need to know. So, you know, you deal out a hand of 10 cards to every player and you basically say, let's just go pay for some card and let's see what it does. Very easy to ramp people up into it. Um, so really a, a terrific game um, from the Fricks Brothers and uh, Stronghold Games is the publisher on that one here in the U.S. Nice. Uh, cool. Yeah. Jeff, what about you? Um Willikers. I'm going to throw I just I'm going to I'm going to go the other direction and 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 have two simple games. Um one is which I think is a work of genius which after we played it my wife said to me she says why don't you design this type of game? <laughs> but, and that would be that would be The Mind. Uh Wolfgang Warsh, I believe his name is. And it is I can teach you the game right now. 100 cards from 1 to 100 and um you shuffle them up and you deal out one card to each player initially and the players look at their cards they can't show them to each other they can't talk they can't gesture um and the players then have to play them face up to the center of the table in ascending numerical order and each time you make a mistake and somebody else has a lower card in their hand when you've played a card um you lose a life everyone plays their first one card from their hand you go to round two and everybody gets two cards and you have to do the same thing again and Communication. You end up trying to communicate the how high your cards are by pauses, by glances, by body language. Hmm. I'm such an amazing experience, and you know, there's no super big strategy. There, you're not. It's you're not burning your brain, but it's just a social experiment um, in a you know hundred hundred card deck, and it's just such a little piece of genius. Nice. Yeah, so that's very much at the end of kind of the experimental side of where gaming has gone uh, in the last couple of years in, in reference to what I was saying earlier. Um, really an amazing game. I, I want to shed light on another part of uh, the industry by talking about a game called Azul. Uh, Azul's a Michael Kiesling game. Uh, Kiesling, very, very uh, renowned designer. Azul is what we'd consider an abstract game. It, it has a story, it has a setting, but it really is um, a puzzle game. And what's, uh, what's so compelling about it is the components are, are themselves beautiful. I mean, really, really lovely heft to them and beautiful design. So the game immediately attracts attention, attracts people's eyes. Uh, but the actual gameplay itself uh, combines uh, a drafting mechanism. So you have to select tiles, and every time you select a tile, you're also choosing a set of tiles that are going to go into the into a center sort of grab pile. So you're always sort of doing almost like an I cut you choose type of mechanism, um, but very very simple to understand. And then you're assembling these tiles onto your board, trying to establish specific patterns. Um, and the game can be played very um, uh, competitively in a really cutthroat manner, or it can be played in a much more relaxed environment. 
Um, but again, it's easy to teach, compelling visuals, compelling components, and a great puzzle. So even as gaming has advanced, we haven't abandoned sort of older forms or the notion of abstract games. They're not you know, this sort of stodgy thing that you have to dedicate your life to. They're still exciting and new things happening in that space as well. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, thank you guys for those uh, recommendations. Um, so, all right, I'm going to wrap things up a little bit. Uh, let's uh, let's just uh, so building blocks of tabletop game design. It should be out now or at least in the next couple of days. It is out now on the Kindle version. Um, and so people should definitely check that out. I'll put that in the show notes. Is there anything else that you guys would like to plug uh, in terms of like your your podcast? Your, you both have your own um blogs podcasts um so why, why don't we do that what do you guys got to plug well um I, I i am no longer on the podcast i just recently stepped aside from ludology but i would certainly recommend oh, that no. people listen to that all my old catalog is still there up through i was there up through episode 200 um nice. two, 200 episodes was about as far as i could so <laughs> i handed the torch off to some great uh new co-hosts um but i will be um i'll still be appearing on um the Dice Tower podcast, um, so you can hear me there. And I will periodically pop up on Ludology doing special interviews. I recently did an interview with um, a uh, the lead uh, researcher from Asmodee Research, who they give grants um, for academic studies of board game-related uh, subjects. So it was very interesting to talk to him about some of the stuff that they're doing. Um, and, uh, you know, I will certainly be at a lot of uh, shows. I'm going to be at uh, uh, Gen Con and then Tabletop Network uh, Designer uh, Conference, which we're trying to turn into like the GDC, uh, which is more for video games. Although there's still tabletop content there, of kind of specifically fo focused on the craft of uh, tabletop game design. So I, I will be uh, speaking and helping organize that conference as well. And you can find me on Twitter at G Engelstein. And how about you, Isaac? Uh, so first off, thanks so much for having us. And uh, I've been a longtime listener of your show, so it's really exciting to have had the chance to spend time together. And I understand that you're actually not too far from us, so maybe we could even uh, uh, take this into a uh, in-real-life space. Oh, yeah, um, let's do it. You guys are in New York? Uh, I'm in Stamford, Connecticut, uh, okay. just, uh, just outside of York County, as I recall. And Jeff's over in New Jersey, so this is practical. It is possible. Yeah, let's um, do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of finding me, it, I will be on Twitter from now until forever at Kind Fortress. Uh, the blog is at kindfortress.com on, on, on the web. And uh, the podcast is On Board Games. You can get that at onboardgames.net, where I am on about every other week. But I... I Definitely think that the other uh, hosts are also worth listening to, and you should totally not skip their episodes. Um, the uh, other things I have to tell you about is that I will be at Gen Con this year, uh, mostly at the Jelly Bean Games booth. So if you want to meet me there, please come on over. You'll also have a chance to check out Show and Tile, uh, a game that uh, Jelly Bean has published, uh, designed by myself and Matt Loomis. Uh, it came out last year, and uh, so I hope you'll, uh, you'll come take a look at that. Uh, August 31st, the new version of Saikatsu drops. Uh, it's called uh, Saikatsu A Pet's Life. It's got totally reworked art and uh, great components, awesome gameplay. If you haven't played Saikatsu yet, uh, definitely check that version out. And uh, I will also be at BGG Con and the Tabletop Network uh, convention that Jeff mentioned, uh, hopefully participating uh, as a student and, and perhaps as a speaker uh, in some capacity as well. So I hope uh, to see you all there. 
And I think that's probably it. Maybe PAX Unplugged, another good place, especially for, for the PAX community that does listen to this. Um, I'm going to try and uh, try and make that. And uh, yeah, so please uh, check it out. Uh, please connect with me at Kind Fortress or Isaac at KindFortress.com. Awesome. I'm going to be at PAX Unplugged myself, so I will see you there. Um, and hopefully we can, yeah, hang out at some point uh, somewhere in the between the geometric center between the three of us. Yeah, thank you guys so much for coming on the show. Big fan of both your work. And uh, yeah, thanks again. I'm really excited for the book. I will be grabbing it as soon as possible. See you next time. Thanks so much, Keith.